Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, and I'm pumped to be here kicking it with y'all. How you doing today, my friends? I was just down south this past weekend, and I got to meet people from Waffle House. Like, they were at... They were like showing, talking about internships and job opportunities and stuff like that. And I went up to the booth and I fangirled hard, y'all. We got a great conversation. I told them about the podcast. They gave me an email address to reach out to to tell them about the podcast. I have no idea what comes from that. Even if it's a free waffle, it will have been worth it. But I just want to let you know, that's how committed I am to diners, y'all. We out here. Uh, just I don't think I made them a little bit nervous. Like, wow, you're really into this. But uh, anyway, friends, I'm excited that you're here and kicking it with us. I'm excited for you also to meet who I got coming out in just a hot second. My man, Joe Mull, Pittsburgh native, holding it down with the black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow. He is become, he has become a very dear friend of mine, and I look up to him in many ways, and I'm just excited for you all to get to kick it with him and hear his grace and his brilliance and his and his great jokes. Uh, he's, uh, he's a speaker. He writes about commitment in the workplace. He's the host of the popular Boss Better Now podcast. He also wrote a book called No More Team Drama. That's team with an M, not teen drama, because that book would have done better than his book, No More Teen Drama. But anyway, um, No More Team Drama, <laughs> ending the gossip clicks and other crap that damage workplace teams. He's a father of three. I've met all three of them, and I like all three of them. He's a huge Disney fan and is woken up every morning by a needy but loving Delmar. Flash. Flash is quite the ball of energy and quite the pooch. I'm excited to bring out right now my man, Joe Mull. James, my friend, I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the diner, man. Thanks for squeaking into the booth. Listen, I, I have watched you have such an impressive array of guests on this show. And now that I am here, it is clear that uh, this program has taken a huge step back. So I'm <laughs> sorry that you've had to kind of reach deep into the well to for me. But I'm just excited to brag that I'm in the company of the others who have been here. Thanks for having me. Bingo, bingo. The little things we do for each other. <laughs> Uh, I love it, man. Thank you so much for, uh, for hanging out with me, Joe. It's been, you know, you and I have known each other now for, uh, only about two years, maybe I think we're Sounds coming up right. on two years. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm slowly getting to know you I had the opportunity to come out stay with your family and, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, just outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and it's just been a, such a joy, brother, such a joy. I'm excited, uh, that, that this friendship has happened to my life. Oh, man. Likewise. You know, when you meet somebody and you just kind of instantly connect with who they are at their core and with their personality, their sense of humor and their energy. And, um, you know, I think our mutual friends, Christine and Tammy, were the ones who connected us, uh, you know, and shared friends in the speaking world. And um, they were kind of like, how do you all not know each other? And then. Boom, we found ourselves in a, a storytelling group together and uh, the bromance began. 
The bromance began. We found out just how deep the rabbit hole goes with uh, how our, our paths have aligned um, right. as well. Uh, but, Joe, this show is called Diner Talks. We can get to all that stuff later. Um, but uh, this show is called Diner Talks. And so I need mm. to know, brother, I need to know, mm. you know, this past weekend I was down in Atlanta and I got an after- opportunity, as you heard, I got to meet with some Waffle House folks. And then I naturally went to a Waffle House as well. Yes. Because the all-star specials always call on my name. And, uh, but I'm wondering for you, do you have, or maybe in your past life had a late night guilty pleasure move? Is there a spot that you like to go to? Is there a, a typical order for you? Got you. Well, first of all, Waffle House is a required stop if I'm going to a town that has one. Because in, in Western Pennsylvania, there's one. It's a bit of a haul for me to get there. So my wife and I, for years, when we would travel, if we were driving to the to the beach for the summer or something like that, or like to, for a summer vacation, we see a Waffle House, we are pulling over, right? I am a, <laughs> a scattered, smothered, and covered brother. Okay, yeah. that's I am. We are Waffle House devotees. So I would have been fanboying out probably just as much as you did. So I uh, completely get that um, in terms of the late night order though I- i'm much more a like stay at home late night snacker and spent yeah. a lot of years as quite the uh, ice cream connoisseur and i'm going to tell you what a- after years of experimentation and study is the single greatest pint of ice cream you can get your hands on it is ben and jerry's mm. salted caramel core They've got these like fascinating. It's got this core caramel that goes right down the center, yeah. and it's got like these little pieces of you know, like those Biscoff cookies you get on Delta Airlines. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Right. So it's so they've got little pieces of like that sort of thing in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll change your life if you can get your hands on a a Ben and Jerry salted caramel core. Now I made some changes a few years ago with kinds of the the, the food I'm eating and trying to be a little bit healthier, and so that is a rare treat now late at night. But for a time. That was the go-to. That was a regular treat. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. That was part of the problem, yeah. right? That's why that is so too regular. <laughs> so here's the thing. I am also a, a bit of an ice cream connoisseur. I am okay. also a lover of Ben and Jerry's. Yes. Have you been up to the spot in Vermont? Have you been? No, no. Uh-uh. What's the, so you've been there. Yep, you got it. Yeah, you got to put it on your list. It's fun. Okay. I mean, just outside of Burlington, uh, Vermont, it's great. You get to go and you get to try, try ice creams. You get to watch how it's made, and then you get to eat more ice cream. So it's really a okay. great trip. Um, that's my Disney, <laughs> Joe. That's my. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that to me feels like telling an alcoholic that he should go to this great bar. I'm not yeah. sure that's the <laughs> smartest move for me, as I, as I'm trying to stay committed and disciplined around some of this. But uh, <laughs> but I'm an admirer of the company, and and they they do great. They do great stuff what's your go-to ben and jerry's so i also am a big fan of the cores i've had the product that you shared it is yeah. delicious uh, yes. i'm a peanut butter fudge core guy though Ooh, that's a good move a yeah i can't product. i can't push back no that's that's up there <laughs> i can't push back <laughs> no, what am i gonna say to that no okay respect you know so yeah but, uh here's here's a disappointing fact that i learned the other day that i don't think i ever really just paid attention to tina is a big fan of uh uh hagen has this like white chocolate chip raspberry thing or whatever truffle thing it's very good yeah and so uh so i went and picked us up both some ice cream because it was just like you know what it's been a hard week we're getting ice cream and uh and i held both of them in my hand and i would say the ben and jerry's one is disappointingly heavier (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> they are both a pint of ice cream, but not all pints are created equal. It's incredible. Uh, I was like, oh, no, that's probably bad. That's probably the weight of butter. I don't know what that is, but yeah. <laughs> now, now, some might, folks might have actually been excited about that and been like, look, I'm getting so much more value yeah. for my dollar here. Yeah. I'm, I'm fully committed to the ice cream experience, and the proof is in the amount of effort I have to put into lifting up the pint. Exactly. But you, you took it the other way. It was like a danger signal. Yeah. Yeah. Shame will do that to you. Um, <laughs> Uh, I love it, brother. I love it. <clears throat> well, that's fair. I'm glad a uh, fellow ice cream lover in uh, in the diner here. Uh, that's that's great, dude. So now you're are you are born and raised in Western Pennsylvania, correct? I was raised in Pennsylvania, first in central Pennsylvania up until about 12 years old. Okay. Uh, then when my parents split, my both uh, sides of my family had go back uh, a couple generations in Pittsburgh. So when my parents split around 12, we moved back to western Pennsylvania. And so I grew up outside of Pittsburgh in all of those kind of middle school and high school formative years. But I was actually born in Frankfurt, Germany. My dad was in the army and uh, my mom was over there with him and I was in her belly. And so that meant I was over there, too. Uh, And when the time came for me to make my entrance, I actually was born on the army base in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, which was not planned and not supposed to be allowed. But that is a a thing that happened because when when mom went into labor, dad was like, we're doing this here. And that's all there is to it. And so, yes, I was born in Frankfurt, Germany. And I think they brought me home back here to the States when I was like nine months old. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, I spent most of the rest of the formative years in PA. Wow. Now, does that mean I don't know how this works. Does that mean you could apply for German citizenship or no, Uh, because it was on an army base? Well, so here's what my understanding of it is. Um, so I this may have no accuracy to it whatsoever. So, you know, people listening, if you take this as gospel, like do a Google search, people. Um, <laughs> but my understanding of it is that I had a right to claim dual citizenship until I was 18. And then uh, after 18, if I wanted to continue with German citizenship, I would have had to declare it. And I don't know that I would have been allowed to maintain dual citizenship. But um, I the only thing that's different for me is that my birth certificate actually says certificate of uh, U.S. birth abroad. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. I was always the kid in social studies class. They were like, wait, does that mean you can be president? Yep. And I was like, uh, was, you're I'm not going to lie, I was thinking of it. <laughs> yeah, no, my understanding is that, uh, that I can. Yeah, that because I was uh, a U.S. citizen to U.S. parents born abroad, that I would still qualify. I don't think you actually have to be born on U.S. land as long sure. as you have that U.S. citizenship. Here again, not an expert. Check out the Google for yeah. more information. Well, when you run for president, don't all that stuff look at drug up and uh, it'll be a hot mess for you. And, you know, good luck with that part of it. Um, You know, I believe you though, Joe, I believe that you're a citizen. Thank you. (laughs) I will get you my long form birth certificate if you need it at some point. Perfect. Perfect. Sounds good. Yeah. This is the start of your campaign, right? That's right. Um, I'm here to make a special announcement change. Yeah. 2044. Here we go. Um, (laughs) Do you ever have it? Would you ever have a desire to do that? Because not in a million years would I ever have a desire to do that. Like I'm politically involved and I care about a lot of that stuff, but the idea of actually trying to vie for public office in that way, like, no, I just, I couldn't imagine doing it. 
there is part of me that is intrigued by it. Uh, I think the opportunity to make impact, I think I would get really frustrated at the game. Yes. I think I would, and I think I would be getting increasingly disappointed at the game. Yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah. Yes. And I, I have, (laughs) I am both not self-confident enough and I don't have the temperament for it. I would be too easily stung (laughs) by all of the people who said horrible things about me who had never met me. I'd be like, but you don't even know me. And then I would, I would just turn to rage or something really unhealthy. And I I would, I would be the guy whose clip went viral because he said something horrible to somebody (laughs) in the audience. Know thyself. Know thyself. That's right. Uh, oh, for yeah. that guy, he strings swear words together like a pro. <laughs> that was great. What a tapestry. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that that's awesome. Yeah, I, I love think the, that's a Christmas story callback. By the way, that I, I understand. I got it. There yeah, you go. I'm with you. That's that's there the, you go. That's the yeah. <laughs> Not every joke's for everybody, Joe. Um, that one was for me though, right. and I appreciate it. You're right. Yeah, I think it's I think it kind of goes back to the same thing as why why I enjoy being self-employed. Right. Like, I think I think I'm just better at being self-employed than I am better at being having a boss. Um, And uh, so I think it goes back to something. it It would strike a similar nerve to me. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember someone told me when I started my business that the beauty of being self-employed is not only do you get to decide what you want to do and when you want to do it, you get to decide who you do it with. And that has proven to be probably the most valuable aspect of being Mm self-employed because, you know, like one of the core values that we set up in my business was joy. And we, we have turned away business just because we learned quickly that, you know, the folks we were working with, weren't weren't bringing the joy and so uh you know life is too short to be miserable at work yep. that's a big part of what actually what i ended up talking about on stages but it's a core part of how i like to operate too and i think if you try to go into elected office you got to represent everybody and there's a whole lot of not joy in that <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> yeah for sure yeah i yeah i agree with you my dad my dad is convinced that i will run for something one day which is intriguing really yeah, he thinks he thinks I will. <clears throat> um, I could totally see that though. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, at some point in time. I mean, I I'm not I'm not completely opposed to it. I just not I'm not there yet. I think there's also a huge part of me that's like, well, I didn't go to law school and I didn't go here. I think uh, I'm also like a do it or do it right or not do it at all kind of guy. So I probably yeah. wouldn't just be like, oh, it's so nice that I'm helping to run this small town. I'd be like, I need to run the biggest city. Uh, right? Like <laughs> That's kind of the way I go. Right. I'm, yeah. It's, uh, it's a sad, it's a sad, but a true fact about me that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on discovering what enough means in my own life. But I feel like now that you've mentioned this on the podcast, then now you can be recruited. Like there's some mid to large size cities who would really mm-hmm. benefit from somebody like you at the helm. So like, uh, Portland, give my man a call here because he can help. <laughs> all right. So go online, check him out and then start to like a grassroots campaign to recruit James to come to your city, like Charleston, South Carolina, where are you at? You know, like this is the guy. <laughs> Get you a James. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love it. So Ain't no Ohio's calling James. Sorry. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Maybe we'll start with Dennison. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh so joe born in uh, born in frankfurt raised in central pa what what was it what was a young joe mo like what uh what, what were you interested in what were some of your passions what did you want to be when you grew up oh man uh 
the two words that spring to mind I, when I was young, I was small and smart. I liked school. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked learning. Um, I liked my teachers. Uh, I, I didn't mind doing homework. Like for a lot of years, that was just who I was. And like small and smart is a pretty lethal combination in the eighties mm-hmm. when there's no <laughs> anti-bullying programs to help kids not be cruel. And so I had a hard time actually. And so um, my favorite pastimes in my formative years were um, evading ridicule and <laughs> trying not to get made fun of. Right. You know, Um, I I ended up, though, kind of finding a home uh, in the arts, in music and theater. And I think where a lot of kids end up. Right. Who Mm -hmm. who um, maybe are are looking for a way to to be themselves and and, um, to connect. And uh, it ended up leading to me getting a a degree in music, uh, not to jump ahead a few years in your line of questioning there, but um, all those things are kind of tied together. But that, that, that's what I think of when asked about those formative years. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, what were you bullied for? I mean, obviously bullies don't necessarily need a reason, but was it your size? Was it your stature? Was it, was it because you were a nerd, all of the above? Like what, what did they pick on you for? I think it was probably all of the above. I think that there are some kids who are I think I was probably a little awkward. I think I didn't I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And I think other kids pick up on that, you know, and I think that, you know, some kids just figure out that they get good attention when they make their peers laugh. And so they end up making their peers laugh at the expense of other kids. And mm-hmm. so um, I think it was it was some of that. Um, I remember always feeling like I was getting made fun of because I didn't have the name brand clothes. Like we didn't really have a lot of money growing up. And so I remember kids wearing Nikes and ocean Pacific shorts. And, you know, I was wearing the off like a Kmart off brand stuff. And, you know, we'd go school shopping and mom would have to put it on layaway and pay for it over months. And the stuff was just not the stuff that all the other kids were wearing. And, you know, having a lot of like, oh man, this is going to go well. People are going to give me crap about this. And, you know, um, but like, I never was, I never resented mom or for that. You know what I mean? Cause I knew what her situation was. It was, mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't in line with what we could do at the time. But so, yeah, I, I mean, not to get too heavy, but I think all that stuff kind of comes together to make school kind of miserable for some kids. And that was my story. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, man, that's I, that 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 sucks. <laughs> uh, I mean, my mom, uh, my parents weren't necessarily big name brand buyers either. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that's not because we didn't have the means. I just don't think that's that's not the way my mom was yeah. raised and and whatnot. So I'm not I'm not going to say our situations were the same. Uh, <clears throat> but that's you know that's kind of just the way my mom rolled, right? Like my mom's yeah. a couponer, um, and yeah. like to this day, like still a couponer, heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and so, yeah. And, uh, but I'm wondering for some of those, for some of those, that, that bully period, like that's where we start to form our self-esteem, right? Like for me, yeah. that's when I was, I was a slightly larger kid. Um, and I was always tall. Um, and then in mm-hmm. middle school, like my weight caught up to my height and yeah. then I kind of just kept growing the same size all the way up. So I've always kind of just been this, you know, refrigerator of a man. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, but that's, that's where a lot of my self-esteem stuff came around my, my own, 
my weight uh, and whatnot. And that was exacerbated by my father uh, a little bit and just passive aggressive comments that were made yeah. um, and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, a lot of that stuff sticks with us. Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm wondering for you, uh, is there anything for you that's stuck? Like, are there still like some of those inner demons that you that you fight from that period? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm very aware of probably giving too much credence to what other people think, or maybe more importantly, what other people might think, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I find myself having myself like, cause there's several of me. God, there's, that, <laughs> there's something to unpack there too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Tune in next I, week for my interview with the other Joe Mo's other personality. <laughs> <laughs> her name is Stella. She's an 82 year old woman and she resides back here behind my frontal lobe. She's a boss. Okay. She's a boss. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it, it's interesting. I, I see some good and some bad that has come of it. I, I've learned to be a kind of social chameleon. I have, I have learned how to kind of adjust my, my style, my tone, my personality to kind of blend into whatever the room dictates or whatever's happening in the group. And in some ways that serves me really well. Like I can go to a board meeting and a business dinner and really kind of a highfalutin sophisticated place and absolutely be on par with everybody there. Uh, and then I can also go to whatever is the opposite of that and hang too, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so in terms of being able to like flex my style and meet people where they are, like that, that has been, I think, a part of it. And on the other mm -hmm. side, though, it's kind of this quest for your authentic self that I think even into my 40s now, I'm still figuring out, especially when you then go out into the world and you build a brand around your name and you get on stage and you, you, know, you start to build this kind of collective idea of the work you want to do and people want to follow you and tune into you. And it's like, wow, if I don't come to this with authenticity, then, then that is really selling both myself short and the people who are, you know, spending their time trying to listen to what I might have to say. Uh, and so I better figure out what is my authentic voice and when am I uh, speaking in service to them versus, uh, you know, being worried about what somebody might think or say. And that, so that's a whole kind of ongoing uh, wrestling match. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, for sure. You know, I was, I was talking to a, a group of men at this conference that I went to this weekend and I do, I do a program called men work in progress. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all about how this idea of we as men choose cool over great and how that hurts us yeah. a lot of time as men. Right. Yeah. And, and so one of the questions that I ask in there is, you know, if you, if you had to choose, would you rather be liked or respected? Hmm. And and so for me, for me, I mean, first off, I think in life you can be both, right? But I'm, yes. I'm making people choose because that's what I'm allowed to do. And um, <laughs> your show, man. <laughs> yeah, you know how it is. I'm the one with the microphone. No, um, <laughs> but uh, but still, um, when I think about that for for myself in relation to what you were just sharing, is that I think the answer is respected. Mm -hmm. But all of my actions, the way I carry myself, the way I ask, the way I ask others, the way I let them influence me, all of my actions point towards liked. Yes. Um, and I don't always love that about myself, but I have a deep desire to be liked. Um, yes. I tend to get a lot of opinions from a lot of people who some who are great and some who I don't need to be getting their opinions for before I make a move. Um, yep. And uh, so, yeah, so I think there's, there's a lot, there's a lot in there for me that's kind of similar. It sounds like to you, just as yeah. far as the way that we let the moment or who's around us or, 
I don't know how we'll potentially be looked at influence our actual decision. And I think that the answer to the question is like every other question. The answer is probably, well, it depends. Um, you know, I think there are some times when maybe the circumstances require you to be liked very quickly in order to then be able to do the work that would lead somebody to respect you. Um, I don't think, from a speaking perspective, you know, we, we all know what all the data says about how quickly people form opinions of you when they look at you on stage. And uh, I, I need them to like me for in the first few seconds so that the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the, the thing we're going to do together here for the next 60 minutes is going to work. Yep. Uh, and so there's a certain amount of stagecraft that comes with that. And that's intentionally choosing, I think, liked before respective and thinking of it more as i guess a process what's interesting is when you ask the question what popped into my head is this kind of baseball boys club that exists in my community so we've okay. my, my son plays ball plays, plays uh, soccer and baseball and uh, he loves both of them and um in our community the baseball teams are run by this sort of entrenched group of guys who are <laughs> I hope they're not listening. They're very <laughs> clearly vicariously living the the uh, ball player dream through their kids' lives a little bit, yeah. and uh, it's a very sort of insular culture. But what I figured out very quickly is, um, if I'm not liked, then like the teams that my kid gets to be on and the amount of playing time he gets suffers, and that sucks. Like mm -hmm. that is that is just not the way it should be, and not the way that it should work. Um, but that's the reality of it in this community, and so. I've had to kind of play a part for a couple of years, uh, went around some of these guys and, you know, some of them drive me crazy. And I've come home and said to my wife, like, oh, like, why do I care what these guys think? They're the worst, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's it, and it's it, it's in sort of service to to Miles and knowing that, like, hey, he wants to try playing in the infield this year and he's clearly got the chops to do it. And I don't want to be that dad like in the coaches you're like hey you got to play him in the infield because that's not how it works either. Yep, um, yep. But there is clearly a a. Uh, a certain amount of favoritism that gets played among some of those kids and the teams that mm. they get put on based on the relationships the parents have with each other and the coaches have with the parents. And so in that kind of circumstance, the answer is it depends and, and, nope. you know, liked matters. Yeah. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? And this is, you use the term social chameleon. That's actually something I've uh, called myself before. Uh, <clears throat> there's actually a piece of my book where I kind of talk about how is this, I wrote this book about authenticity and leadership and stuff like that. And I, and I write about it, be like, does that mean I'm not authentic? Right. Does that right. mean I'm like, it's, it's a fa like you get real deep into some of that kind of stuff of like, yes, just because I can play the game and I can change who I am. I mean, does that mean that I'm all of a sudden not authentic? And I, I think for me, it comes down to values, right? Like mm -hmm. in, in those conversation with those, those other baseball fathers in your case or baseball parents in your case, right? It's not yeah. like you're compromising your values or anything like that, right? It's not like, all right, let's all the guys are going in the outfield and doing lines of coke before the game, right? All right, well, I got to do it because Miles has got to play, right? Like, it's not like that's what you're doing. Um, right. And so you're not compromising who you are at your core. Right. But it is fascinating uh, the ability to – to play in multiple arenas like you can, and like, I believe I yeah. can. And yeah. that, that question of going home and falling asleep of like, okay, am I, am I still authentic? Cause I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the difference. So one of the, the coaches is famous for yelling at some of these kids. Uh, and he will from time to time say things like, um, 
you swing like a girl. He does this sort of gendered uh, oh. sexist terminology. Uh, and it got to the point where I had to say something. And um, that's the difference for me is you have to do both. Like I, I couldn't lay my head on my pillow at night and watch him inject that into the minds of these kids. And the first couple of times he did it, I said something to my son. You know, pulled him aside and said, hey, that's not OK, uh, yeah. because I can think of at least 100 women right now who could kick his ass. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and so we'd have these deeper conversations about where that comes from and how that's really unhealthy. And um, and I'm thinking, OK, great. Like, that's my duty to my son and, and the kind of person that I want to raise him to be. Um, but then, like, just like you said, where do where is the commitment to my values um force me to step into the discomfort of some of those conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the moment, like standing there at the fence at the ballpark being like, Hey, come on, man. Like, you know, you, you got a daughter standing back there. You can't be saying that garbage, you know, yeah. and then having him kind of be like, Oh, you know, and, and maybe never been called out on it before. Yeah, um, I'm sure. But it's, it's liked versus respected. And that, that values piece comes into play. Mm -hmm. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I completely agree. And and we all know people because we've all been that person who doesn't say anything there, right? Yeah. It's like, well, I don't want to make waves. I don't want to yep. make an awkward situation or, you know, who am I to crawl, call another grown ass adult out. But like, no, right. that, that's the moment where, where that's right. Right. It's, it's, it's choosing to do the right thing, even though the right thing is hard or the right thing is awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Or that there were, there were 19 times it was said and you didn't say anything. And that was the big, the big part of it for me. That was hard. And, and being like, okay, like what, when are you going to speak up? You can't just keep letting that happen, you know? And yeah. um, knowing that then that might take away the liked, which then takes away the full opportunity for my kid. You know, and so all of that gets mixed up together and, um, you yeah. know, but my obligation is to role model for my son how we need to be in the world. And so that was more important than him getting to play shortstop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. That's the, the tough moments, but those those are the moments that matter and those are the moments that stick uh, for sure. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That's beautiful, brother. You know, you, uh, <clears throat> so you talked about how you, you got into theater. Um, and, uh, I also found myself in theater, uh, and, uh, you can hear just in your voice. I knew it the first time I met you, I was like, I know this man can sing. No, um, just, <laughs> just because you have, you have a timbre and, uh, 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 to your voice. No, um, it's you. really, yeah, it's even just in your speaking voice. <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah, so so theater theater was the game. You went to school uh -huh. for music. Yes. What what was what was the goal there? What were you like? I'm going to go to school for music so I can what? So I I really wanted to be on Broadway. So yeah. I am a song and dance man at heart, uh, and I didn't really figure that out until high school. Um, uh, the 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 career goal was either Broadway or I wanted to be a high school choir teacher because mm -hmm. my high school choir experience might've saved my life, you know, as, as hard as it was in school to be able to actually find a group of people that uh, I, I fit in with a little bit. And that allowed me to do something good and that people saw as valuable and, you know, to kind of rebuild my self-esteem through that experience, I think was, was, um, you know, invaluable to me at that age mm -hmm. and to to be able to maybe do that for other kids was uh, something that really appealed to me um but that's always the fallback right like every person is like i'm gonna go be on broadway and or i'll get my teaching certificate you know that, yeah. that's, yeah. that's kind of like the stereotypical plan and um 
So I ended up going to a four-year degree program and um, learned a couple of things very quickly about whether or not that was going to happen. Um, if anybody listening to this wants to go be a music teacher someday, you should start taking piano lessons yesterday because I went to college oh, no. having never done it. And yeah. um, it, it really is a kind of a foundational core skill. You can't really teach music to other kids if you can't read music and play music. And I came to that late. I didn't come to that until halfway through high school. Mm. Um, I, I put me on stage in high school and said, sing, and I could sing and I learned how to really sing. And that was all great. But uh, to, to translate that into teaching, I was great at the voice coaching stuff because I had great voice teachers and I knew how to do all that. But some of the technical music, uh, you know, I, I really struggled with it by the time I got to college. And um, so all those things together um, prevented me from, I ended up being in a, a, a classroom somewhere. Wow. Yeah, that is, uh, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it's because it's not like you're in your music class, your choir or something like that, and someone's going to bang the notes out for you. They don't right. like pull up their clarinet and be like, all right, yep. y'all, let me play this next chord for you. Right. Yeah. Especially with multi parts and, and everything. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, start. Yeah. With one of the, one of the first uh, courses that you take, isn't uh, piano 101 probably uh, that's right in college it is in college if you're a voice major you have to do piano classes for four years yeah. unless you've been playing for a while then you can opt into lessons but i get uh, you know my my major was voice and so i get asked you know every couple of months by some other family that we'll meet who knows i have a degree in voice and they'll say oh my daughter's thinking about majoring in that in college what advice can you impart uh, and I give two pieces of advice. The first is if you haven't started practicing the piano, start right now, take lessons and make a point to practice two hours a day, every day for the entire four or five years of your college experience. And when you're done, you will be just barely, maybe I hope passably good enough to do it <laughs> at the level that you would need to make this a career. And then the second piece of advice is when choosing a school to major in for music, look specifically at schools who teach you how to get a job. Because I, I went to a great school who had a great music education program for teachers. Uh, but if you're majoring in performance, there was no audition coaching. There was no uh, setting you up, helping you connect to uh, internships or teaching you how to become a working musician. Whereas I had another friend who did go to one of those schools yeah. and his experience was night and day different. Interesting. Yeah. So there's music education schools and then there's music performance or right. you know, that kind of. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. yeah, yeah. If you go to a conservatory, you go to NYU, it is all about working. It is all about understanding how to audition. It's all understanding how to plug into that network and that community and where to go and how to become a working musician. And there's a lot of different ways you could be a working musician. It's not all Broadway. It's right. you can do studio work. You can do ensembles. You can I mean, there's so many different ways you can do it. But I didn't know that at, at 20, 21, 22, because right. I didn't get that in my program. And I'm not, I don't mean to sound like I'm, I'm blaming them. I had a phenomenal experience and I wouldn't change anything about it because everything I ever did led me to where I'm at right now. And I'm super grateful to that. Uh, but if you are really wanting to make that your career, if you really want to make singing your career, that piece about auditioning and working has to be a part of the, the school piece. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. For sure. I also, uh, you know, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And once I realized my GPA wasn't where it needed to be for me to be a marine biologist, I also was like, well, I guess I'll be a teacher. Um, and, <laughs> and I didn't have to learn the piano to do that. But uh, <laughs> a, few, a few less barriers to entry there. Uh, right. but, but, but still, uh, it, it's interesting how I kind of had these 
grandiose visions of being a, a, marine, bi- a marine biologist on television, right? That's what I wanted oh, to do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so there's always been this piece inside of me of that performer. Um, yes. I don't know if I told you this, but going to college, I chose between marine biology or theater. Um, and I wound up choosing marine biology because I thought it would be smart to get a practical degree, um, okay. right? Or a hard degree that I could, you yeah. know, put plant a flag in. And if I put myself where I needed to when I was later, not when later in life, then I could always do theater or do music or whatever. Um, and so uh, who knows if, if, uh, I mean, obviously, I made the right choice for me because I am where I am today. Uh, but it's yeah. an interesting, circuitous route to being a performer again, essentially, is what we do as speakers. Well, um, listen, my friend, it clearly makes you the only person qualified to write, produce, direct and star in Jaws the Musical. Yeah. OK, this needs to happen. We got to combine <laughs> this glorious marine biology passion with that theater background, my friend. And we need to put that on stage. I feel like it's part of your destiny. It's it's time. I think it is time. Right. Jaws <laughs> the musical brought to you by the new mayor of Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> At the Dayton with, Public Theater. <laughs> leading with porpoise. Um, <laughs> I don't uh, think the title has a lot of teeth in it. I'm yeah, sorry. exactly. So, All right. I think that's yeah. the end of the show for us. I don't think anybody's <laughs> listening anymore. Thanks for never having me back. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for deleting this podcast from your favorite. Uh, Joe, how the kids? No. <laughs> no so, um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so we, we we're in school. We're taking the music route. We're thinking about being a teacher. Realize we don't know a lot about piano. Um, and then we fast forward mm. to where we are today, right? Where you are a, a, a professional speaker who talks about drama in the workplace, company culture, yeah. retention, et cetera, et cetera. And so obviously there were some steps in between there. A fun yeah. thing that you and I have in common is that now uh, we were both involved in college and so involved that we wound up working at university. Mm-hmm. No one goes yep. to college with the idea of working at a college, maybe as a professor, right. but, but, you know, as far as working in the administration side, we worked in, in higher ed and student affairs and whatnot, developing student leaders, running residence halls um, and, and the like. And yep. uh, I'm wondering for you, I don't know if it was during that period or if it was during a, uh, a later job that you had. I know you worked in the healthcare industry for some time, but when did you start to develop your passion for leadership? Mm. You know, it, it did probably start during my career in student affairs. So as you alluded to, when I finished my undergrad degree, because I didn't know how to get a job singing, I had done a whole <laughs> lot of, you know, student affairsy stuff in undergrad, being an RA, being a fraternity president, you know, all that stuff that most student affairs people do when they're yep. undergrads. Um, <laughs> I ended up just, and I loved that. I, I, I was really, um, intrigued by a lot of the conversations we were having about student development and about creating living learning communities and residence halls and all that sort of thing and the college experience. And, and I was good at it. I was really good at it. And most importantly, there were jobs, real jobs that you could get like in the newspaper, like yeah. that you could apply for. And so, um, I, I ended up going into student affairs after undergrad and spent 10 years there. And what I figured out is that I was really good in the front of the room. 
everywhere I went, every stop I was in, um, I enjoyed the process of creating and delivering experiences at the front of the room that were engaging for audiences, whether that was RA training or student development programming. I eventually found myself in health education and promotion and did a lot of alcohol education work with fraternities and sororities. And um, having to figure out (laughs) how do you take a group of people who don't want to be there and turn a program into something that they go, oh, wow, I want to think differently about that. Yeah. Um, that was really exciting to me. It was like, you know, you know, people fall in love with solving a Rubik's cube as fast as they can. Like, mm-hmm. I imagine that that's what that feeling is. It's like, <laughs> how do I, how do I like create line of sight between, I got to go to this stupid alcohol thing on a Tuesday night. Cause our fraternity president said we all have to be there versus to walking out of the room and being like, that was great. And I'm going to change my behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a magic trick, right? And if you can yeah. figure out how to Talk do that magic trick, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and so, really learning about what makes people tick and how they end up thinking differently about things, I think, is is what led me to it. And then, um, after ten years of doing that kind of work, I was um, tired of making no money at all. <laughs> I was like, hmm, $30,000 a year for the rest of my life. I'm not sure about that. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up making the decision to take a little bit of a step back before I could then go forward. Uh, Cause the next kind of stop for me would have been like assistant Dean of students role, but I would have given up a lot of that program development work that I loved and would have been putting a lot more fires out. But anyway, uh, I ended up applying for a training and development job with a, a healthcare organization. And that's how I ended up in that role and that the biggest need there was leadership development. And so it was like, I could take all of these things that I had learned over the years in student affairs and performing arts and sort of marry them together in a training job. And it was Mm. the perfect fit for me. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, That's crazy. It takes guts to, uh, it takes guts to leave a job that is comfortable, one that you like. Um, and yes, you know, as, as most people in education, uh, they get gaslit to, uh, you know, the saying yes. that, well, you just got to appreciate what you yes. have and this is where we are. And this is your, right, it's like, a calling. It's a calling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, the scariest word in higher education is opportunity. That's um, right. Yeah. This is going to no, be like, no, the bill collectors are calling. That's yeah. who's calling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they also see an opportunity. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, but to put all that down and uh, and go into uh, corporate America, essentially, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that 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 takes some guts. That also takes some uh, uh, some confidence to be like, you know what? No, this is what I deserve. This is what I want, mm-hmm. um, and and I have the skill set, and I'm ready to rock. Uh, and so, you know, in that uh, in that period of time. When did you become, would you say, I, I consider us both leadership nerds. Um, yeah. right? like we, we like to read about it. We like to talk about it. We obviously like yeah. to speak about it. Um, when when did you turn into a leadership nerd? When did you, when did you elevate it? I think when I found out how thirsty other people were for it and I married it together, like we all have a knack for things, right? And mm-hmm. I think I figured out that I have a knack for taking complicated things and translating them into 
ideas that are easier to understand and apply. Mm -hmm. So I, I could take a book that's 500 pages and pull out the three or four big ideas from it and package it together as part of a training in a way that leads people to be able to walk out of the room and say, okay, I know what to do with that. And I don't think I realized that that was a strength until people told me over and over and over and over again that it was. And I think then that you, you come to a point and you say, okay, um, these are the tools that I have to use. And so becoming the leadership nerd is a certain amount of this is how I create that experience for those folks. Mm-hmm. Um but the coolest part of it, James, and I don't know if you've had this experience as well, is that you get to pick and choose what's most interesting to share with others or what you think will be most helpful to share with others. Like there are some really amazing popular books out there on leadership that have done nothing for me. Yeah. Um, I, I don't I don't necessarily owe it to an audience to still do the work of translating that because if I read that and think, I don't think there's anything here. Like, I don't think there's anything here that's really new for somebody, but I have this other book or article or speaker or podcast that I've heard. And this person said something really smart, uh, or there's an idea here that I think we can unpack that I think is exciting because it's new and different. Then I can take that to a group or an audience and, uh, make it interesting for them too. I don't know if that is a great answer to your question about when I became a leadership nerd. It was kind of marrying together the proof that I had a skill at it and getting to pick the stuff that was most interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So you can, yeah, you kind of, you were able to pick an area to dive into and research or, uh, you know, develop an expertise in and uh, yeah, you were able to be uh, very pointed in in what you wanted to deliver and, and think about. I think also, I would assume a lot of it also is when, you know, you started writing your book, No More Team Drama and and getting into the speaking world and doing more mm-hmm. and more there, right? Like you you have to work towards being a quote unquote expert, as they like to yeah. say in the speaker field, uh, yeah. whatever that word really means. Right. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that is, uh, yeah, I, I think those those moments combined have, have turned you into the monster that sits in the diner <laughs> with me today. Uh <laughs> And, you know, and the hardest part is when I came out of it from a training background, like as a trainer, I want to tell the whole story every time. And when I moved into more keynote speaking, I had a real learning curve to figure out how not to pack a four hour training into a 60 minute keynote. That's not the thing that doesn't it doesn't work that way. Um, And so I had to understand that I may not have the time or the platform to say, this is a really complicated idea. And here are the 27 ways why, you know, (laughs) Um, but to say, this is a really complicated idea. Here are the two or three things I think are most important for us to zero in on and the most helpful and the most, you know, useful for you. Um, That's a, that's a bit of a learning curve. You know, I don't know if you've experienced that uh, in, in the speaking world and all the different channels and forums and ways that you share your knowledge, but figuring out how to compartmentalize is, is a challenge. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think in general, something that I still struggle with is finding the balance of wanting to be an educator um, and also still, but needing to be an entertainer. Entertainer. Yep. Yeah. Right. And finding that balance and that is, uh, and which audience needs what, right? Like the college market is happy for me to lean more towards the educator side, but it's, it's been a, it's been a learning curve for me to notice that in the, and uh, when talking to adults, they're not necessarily yeah. always here for all that, right? Yeah. Um, that that yep. there's, there's another way to connect. And they're kind of looking for like, 
one really great nugget to take away yeah. as opposed to a whole bunch of things to try. Yep. Yep. No doubt. I, <laughs> I was thinking about, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who we all know wrote Hamilton. Your friend uh, and, and Yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're pals. <laughs> Super tight. Um, and uh, in one of the books that has come out about, you know, kind of documenting the writing process for Hamilton, uh, he wrote a note to Stephen Sondheim um, and basically asked him, hey, do I have to include all this, all this stuff? Or is it okay for me to pick and choose the parts of this story that I think are more interesting. And I guess Sondheim wrote back and basically said, Hey man, it's your show. And you get to decide what you think is going to resonate the most with the audience. And, and again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this from my memory. So please forgive me if the story is not exactly accurate, but that's the gist of it. And, you know, I, I think that's the balance between the educator and the entertainer that we need to strike, right? What What is the balance that you want them to have when they're done? Is it 50-50? Mm -hmm. Is it that you wanted to fill your program with 75% deep substance and 25% entertainment? For me, it, it depends on the circumstance. It depends on who the audience is and what they're looking for, what the meeting planner says they want. Uh, and so I kind of move back and forth within those percentages to try to figure out what the right fit is, you know, depending on the circumstance. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes I'll ask the meeting planner, like, hey, you know, what, what's your ratio? What's your dream yeah. ratio uh, yep. of this? Because <clears throat> I got stories and I also got mm -hmm. facts <laughs> yep. um, or, or whatnot. And so, yeah, uh, that's fascinating to think about for sure. It's been a lesson that I, I would say I'm still learning. Um, yeah, definitely. I just wrote a brand new keynote uh, <clears throat> called Do You Even Know Me? How Curiosity Creates uh, Community and Loyalty. Um, and uh, and that's what I'm I'm learning about. in that one is that I, I'm I just I'm just still trying to find the balance. <clears throat> so. I, I'm in the middle of that right now. I, I'm I'm debuting a keynote in three days uh, in front of now. It's a friendly audience. I spoke for them two years ago. It went very well. Um, they've invited me back. So that's a little different than when you're going in someplace cold. And so it's a good spot for me to to test drive this new keynote. And twice as I've gone through the writing process, I've had to step back and say, okay. Um, there's a little bit too much sort of entertainment on the front end and actually a little bit too much training and subject matter depth on the back end. Um, how do I mix them and blend them together? And it is, it's, it's a, it's an art form that takes a lot of kind of constant tweaking. You don't write it once, do it and say, okay, now it's done. Set it and forget yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, Joe, you have spent, uh, that you're a lot of your speaking career focused on drama um, and, and trying to stop drama in the workplace uh, and, and as a way to, as a vehicle, stopping drama as a vehicle to increase retention, improve company mm -hmm. cultures, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, why did that become an area that you wanted to plant your flag? Yeah. Um, it was, it was, identified as the most necessary thing by the leaders I was working with. So when I first went out on my own and started my business, I was doing a lot of traditional leadership development training and uh, translating a lot of the research in employee engagement on uh, into like, here's what leaders need to do to create the conditions that work for people to thrive. And that's still really the center of what I do every day. Um, but when I would get into these training environments and when I would 
talk with leaders all over the country. Uh, and I would break down these, these uh, you know, six or seven conditions that we need to create for uh, people to be at their best every day. We would always come back to this idea of uh, fostering group cohesion and team spirit. And leaders were pointing that and saying, that's the hardest one. Because what do I do with folks who sabotage? And what do I do with those toxic people? And then when we would put it in the language of the employee engagement space, we talk about actively disengaged employees. And what do I do with those folks? And uh, so I ended up finding that in longer form training environments, I was spending more and more time talking about that. Mm -hmm. And so it was just the next thing. It was, okay, well, this is the next thing that we need to help people with. And so I went away and started doing, I mean, it literally go away, but I, I, <laughs> I found a hole went, in the woods. That's right. <laughs> I rented a chalet on the top of the mountain and wore monk clothing for six years. And I emerged with my book. No. Um, I went to a cabin in the woods for a week though, to get it off the ground. Um, and ended up just doing a lot more deep dive research into theme, things like teamwork. And it, it led me down the path into some of the really interesting, like behavioral economics research in why people make decisions and how they, um, what assumptions we make about other people, the stories we make up in our minds uh, and the shortcuts our brains take about why people do what they do and say what they say. And it all kind of came together um, into a new keynote. So this is the kind of situation where the keynote came before the book. Okay. And I was yeah. uh, writing, I wrote a keynote called No More Team Drama. And I, I kind of test drove it for about a year with audiences. And then I, I said, okay, this is the next book. Uh, I need to go deeper on some of these things based on the conversations I was having. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The uh, <clears throat> the drama in the workplace is something that I know I have certainly experienced. I'm sure it is at times something that I have caused. Uh, I mean, not not little of me, of course, but you no, know, no. sometimes I'm just so dashingly witty, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and a perfectly timed joke will really upset somebody. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I've witnessed, something that I have uh, am, am guilty of, and also something that I am uh, worked on in the teams that I would I that I was present on as well, uh, and and so at the at the core of drama, at mm. the core of drama is. A lot of times it's people think it's just people who want to start shit, right? Like people who are out here, just like, uh, like you said there, um, I forget what was the exact phrase that you said about, uh, they're actively disengaged. Yeah. Yep. You right. Got it. Is, is, is a lot of drama caused by people who truly don't care or is more drama caused by people who feel like they're not heard? Uh, I would certainly say it's the latter. Um, that doesn't mean that the former isn't a part of it. Um, one of the things that I wrote about in the book extensively and that has been at the center of my work for the last couple of years is helping people understand that our brains, our personalities have some default settings that lead us to more favorably judge ourselves and more harshly judge others than we should. Um, and the result is we end up moving through the world with two completely different sets of rules, one for us and one for everybody else. Mm. Right. Stephen Covey famously said, um, we judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by their behaviors. And we have a boatload of social science research that tells us that it's true. One of the things I'll do from the stage is I'll say, uh, what do you assume about somebody who's late to work? And people yell out, oh, they don't care. They didn't try or they overslept. And they, you know, and, and you get this list of character defects. And I say, OK, what was the reason the last time you were late to work? And you get all these 
completely legitimate circumstances, yeah. right? And then, okay, what if somebody gave, had a problem with you being late to work on that day when your kid spilled orange juice on your pants as you were about to walk out the door? And they'd be like, well, that's bull. Like, I work really hard and they should know that. Well, okay, congratulations. You've <laughs> just, just identified the root cause, which yeah. is that you get the benefit of the doubt for yourself, but we don't necessarily give it to others, Right. So our brains tell us that when we see somebody do a questionable thing, it's because they're of questionable character. It's a, this is a bias that we have. And it's just almost always not true. There's almost always a legitimate reason why a good person would act that way. And so when we get into yeah. team drama, what we're really getting down into is how do we short circuit those shortcuts that our brains take where they make up a story about why somebody said what they said or did what they did? That isn't true. How do we know? How do we identify when that story has worked its way into our brain as truth? And what roles do leaders play in tearing apart some of those assumptions and creating the kinds of relationships across teams that keep those those bad stories from taking hold in the first place? Oh, man, you kind of triggered a little keynote there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Joe, that was fire. Um, <laughs> here's what I wrote. Here's what I wrote down while you were talking. When we see people do questionable things, we question their character. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> that's real. Like, I mean, that Covey quote is powerful. We judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge other people by their behaviors. I know I paraphrased a little bit there, but. Uh, but yeah, no, you got it. Oh, nailed it. Oh, I'm, I'm did. a man. Yeah, did. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, that is something that first off, uh, I didn't need to be called out like that today. So that was not, <laughs> I'm not I don't appreciate that. Uh, and, uh, but my wife does, um, I, you know, <laughs> Hey Tina, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, uh, yeah, that's, that is, that's so real, especially as we start to look around, as we start to look around just at how divided our world is right now. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, exact same thing is that we're not the benefit of the doubt isn't there. Right. And just right. like as simple as, uh, you know, there's a rule in comedy called if that is true, then what else is true? Right. And it's a really great way to write funny comedic places because you get into really mm -hmm. cool play. You know, you can really kind of dive down deeper and deeper and you create a really fun world. Um, yep. But that same principle we do unconsciously every day when we meet somebody, right? It's like, yes. oh, you're wearing yep. a mask? Well, mm -hmm. if that's true, I'll tell you what else is true. Oh, you're right. not wearing a mask? Well, if that's true, I'll yep. tell you what else is true, right? Yep. Um, oh, you're vaccinated or you're not vaccinated. Oh, you voted here. Oh, you voted there. Oh, your favorite color is red and you wear red hats. Let me tell you about that, um, yep. right? Like, look, I'm a Red Wings fan. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and so, uh, but still, right? Like uh, the, the rabbit hole goes deep very quickly when assumptions are the one driving the train. And yep. so, <clears throat> um uh, well, can I follow up on that for a second? Because then what happens next is, and this is the reason that team drama takes hold in a lot of uh, groups, large and small, is that we take that assumption, which we perceive as the right story, and we seek out validation for it. So, you know, I talk about in, in the program, I talk about drama triangles, which is that, you know, if, if you are bothered by something that somebody says or does at work, do you go to that person and say, hey, this really bothered me and I, I had a reaction and I think we should sit down and talk about it like adults? No, that does not happen <laughs> like, like anywhere. You know, what we do is we go to another and we say, hey, do you believe that so-and-so did this or did that or, you know, is wearing that mask? And 
We are waiting for that person to look left and look right and then say, I know, right? <laughs> and to, you know, we will seek out the comfort of validation because it's easier to, than stepping into the discomfort of confrontation. Mm -hmm. And that's why we then create gossip and we create infighting and we have all of these kinds of cliquish behavior because we constantly seek out validation of our first reaction opinions because that feels good, right? It, 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 it feels good to be told not only that we are uh, right, but that we are righteous, right? So we, we seek out people to tell us that we have a right to feel offended in that way because now that gives me permission to experience contempt, for the other person. And yeah. so we now created the seeds for all of this conflict and this drama, and we allow these unhealthy patterns of conflict to emerge. And in most workplaces, the adults haven't been taught how to actually engage in healthy conflict, which it turns out is what I said at the beginning. It's going to the person and saying, hey, you know, you said this and it bothered me and I'm having a reaction mm -hmm. to it. And I think we should talk about it. Right. Okay, let me make sure I wrote this quote down right, Joe. We will seek out validation rather than lean into the comfort of uh, the discomfort of confrontation. Pretty close. We we seek out the comfort of validation rather than step into the discomfort of okay. confrontation. The comfort of validation. Yeah. Great. And we, and we do it every day, right? Like if you if your neighbor does something weird, uh, and you know you've had other conversations with a different neighbor about the weirdo across the way. Yep. You know, the next time that that neighbor does something weird, you're going to the neighbor and being like, yeah, guess what? You know, guess what he did again? Yeah. You're waiting for that person to say, I know. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, that's easier and more comforting than it is to go across the street and be like, hey, man, what gives? This yeah. is this is not working for me. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we do that. Uh, you see it anytime somebody's getting ready uh, to have an argument with somebody also, or rather than anytime someone's ready to uh, um, you know, potentially go through a breakup is that they're mm -hmm. waiting for this other person to validate the things that are pissing them off. Right. And they're just their own. They're not watching for anything good they do or anything good they say. They're just right. waiting for you to be like, oh, see, there it is. There yep. it was again. You did it. I told you, right? Or I knew it. Um, and we're building our own walls and our own arguments that we then, like you said, go talk to somebody else for validation rather than having confrontation. Yep. Uh, yep. And this also leads into like the deeper level of drama that I wanted to connect with you on is the power of group think. Yes. Which is, you know, when, when drama really does start to, uh, it's, it's a virus, right? It, and it yep. spreads um, yep. and it turns into groupthink. And, yes. you know, a groupthink is, is a pretty dangerous thing, right? I do, I do a decent amount of work with uh, fraternity men, yep. right? And you just need to turn on the news to learn what groupthink does yep. to fraternity men. None of, those, none of those people set out to hurt anybody that night, yeah. um, right. right? But that's, still, that's what happened, right? And I mean, I know this, it's not just fraternity men. Like I do dumb stuff with my friends all the time, right? Like I have a street sign for my hometown on my garage, uh, right? Yeah. Like, it just is what it is, Joe. Um, so well, like, now you can't be mayor, you thief. Sorry. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, it's it's on public record um right but like you know like groupthink makes us do uh some dumb things it also makes yeah. us not listen it makes us not rational um or or, or whatnot or to, we just don't pause so right. i'm wondering you know how do you start to combat groupthink in some of these teams yeah so 
at one level, we start with, we have to know what our values are. And, you know, in, in teams where there is persistent drama, uh, I liken it to having weeds in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that there is no amount of fertilizer and oxygen and CO2 exchange and water and pruning that is going to convert the weed into a begonia. Mm-hmm. Because it's a weed. And so one of the things that we have a responsibility to do as leaders is when we identify those actively disengaged in teams, those, pe- those people who create and thrive on drama, those folks who um, have shown us over and over and over again who they are. I'm not talking about somebody who has a bad day. I'm talking about somebody who consistently over time has established themselves as a, having a legacy of this kind of behavior. We have to pull the weeds because if we don't, then weeds spread and they strangle the life out of the garden. And so we have to have a commitment. And that's hard in some organizations where some of that problematic behavior is being exhibited by people who do really important things or bring in a lot of money or are the only people who know to do how to do this job. So it can be really hard to stick to your values in those kind of circumstances. The other thing that we need to do uh, is we need to set aside the time necessary to do the work proactively to teach teams how to interact with each other uh, when times are both good and stressful. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who think team building is a dirty word. Team building is an absolutely essential component of creating a high performing workplace and and teams where people treat each other with respect and where there's psychological safety. And we do that by bringing people together, by asking them to work together, by helping them find things in common with each other that don't have anything to do with work so that they can access each other's humanity. When we can see each other as fully formed human beings and not just you're this list of tasks and duties and she's this list of tasks and duties, then when somebody messes up, we're less likely to be like, oh, yeah, she's the worst and actually go, oh, you know, good person having a bad day. And that combats some of the stories that get traded in the group around why somebody said what they did, uh, did said what they said or did what they did. And then the other thing, James, is that we have to constantly question. Uh, and that's a really a, a difficult piece as well. And in the moment, especially if, if group think is taking place, it's often unconscious. Uh, but if when we're doing the work proactively, we actually deconstruct the decisions we made previously, it helps mm-hmm. us get better at deconstructing them in the moment. Uh, and so that's a big part, I think, too, of, of learning how to create a workplace where people um, don't always fall victim to the 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 demons that whisper in their ears and make up the stories about why other people do what they do. Uh, but instead listen to the better angels of their personalities and say, okay, yeah, I'm going to assume good intent here. That's a good person having a bad day. Uh, let me see if I can show up differently. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's so funny. Cause that, that sounds great. And I agree with you. And I also know that we as humans are, quick to do things because we feel like our safety or our comfort is potentially under siege. And, uh, and so we're not as quick to give the benefit of the doubt. Right. I mean, it's something that I conversation I had with Tina a bunch of times mm-hmm. where she's like, she's like, I don't understand why you reacted that way. Where was the benefit of the doubt? And I was like, shit, you're right. Yep. <laughs> right. Like, yep. You know, like, I, I don't know what it was about that moment, but like there was part of me that made me react this way. And I didn't yeah. think about both sides of the coin. Um, and, and so that's something that is such a powerful term uh, that is uh, that you truly need to be trained into, like you said, through culture, uh, company culture work and team building and stuff like that into thinking, which is why well, I love this. go ahead, Joe. I was going to say, and, and it's, it, it's against human nature. You know, when you look at 
all of this research that's been done in terms of our different levels of thinking and and how we respond emotionally versus contemplatively to things, our default setting is to jump to conclusions and is to make up those stories. And so honestly, this is the learning how to play the piano conversation. Right. If you want to have these skills, you've got to show up and practice it every day. And so you have to practice assuming good intent all the time. Leaders have to take ownership of that on their teams and say, I'm going to force my teams to go through the these actions in order to become better at it over time on their own. So every single time a member of my team comes into my office to say, you know, so and so did this and, you know, they don't care or they don't try that leader's got to say, "Okay, hold on time out. That might be true. But what else might be true? What if there was a perfectly good reason for that person showing up that way? What might it be? And, and that takes work that, and that takes a commitment and that could be exhausting. But the more we have those conversations day after day, after day, after day, then it's like putting a little deposit into the piggy, piggy bank of teamwork because eventually it pays off with big savings and, 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 you know, much more capital in that area over time. Yeah. That's what I love about what you said is that, you know, team building isn't, it's something that we we're working on good communication and bad communication, right? Like how do we talk to each other in good times and, and, in, and in stressful times. Uh, I appreciated that. Right. It's not like you don't go to couples count. You shouldn't go to couples counseling just when it, you're starting to be like, Oh, what's going on here. Right. Right. Like start going to couples counselor early. Cause you have to, you want to build in the practice. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, you don't, you gotta, uh, you gotta start learning piano before you go to school for music, which is ironic, right. but it is what it is, right? <laughs> That's what it is. If, if you um, want to have those skills and you want to be able to, 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 you know, make, I was going to really reach for a bad analogy, like make all the harmony work, but, (laughs) but if you wanted, if you wanted to actually all come together in the way that, you know, I I would have wanted it to come together as a musician, you have, you have to do those things. Yeah. Joe, I love that brother. I appreciate you coming in here and dropping a little wisdom on them. Uh, (laughs) awesome, man. No, it's, it's cool to tap into your brain. Right. Uh, it's funny because, you know, we are, uh, our friendship is only growing and it's got uh, a really cool way to go. And I'm excited to continue to get it, to deepen it. Uh, and we talk about our work, but we don't necessarily yeah. talk about what we talk about in our work yeah. as speakers. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's, it's cool to tap. We talk about the business more so than the, the, the kind of the philosophies and the ideas. Sometimes. Yeah, and all the yeah. research you did behind it and everything. So, uh, yeah, man, it was, it was really cool to hear you talk about it. So I, I appreciate you coming in here into the diner and and just and just dropping a little bit on us, but also you know talking to us a little bit about some of that stuff that we learned and the stories we started to write our uh, about ourselves because of the, what yeah. the bullies said and what uh, um and uh, and you know I just appreciate you you talking about it all with me, Joe. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, man, it's an honor. It's a pleasure. I'll come back anytime. I loved it. I, anytime I get to spend time talking with you and just riffing and laughing, man, it's uh, the best part of my day. So thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, I love it, Joe. Joe, let people know where where can they find you if they want to learn a little bit more, man? You you know, you put a lot of uh, great stuff up on LinkedIn and, and, and whatnot, but tell people a little bit more about how they can find you. Thank you, man. Uh, yeah, the, probably the fastest, easiest way is just to go to bossbetternow.com. Uh, you can find our podcast that way. You can find our email newsletter that way. That's connected to our website. So bossbetternow.com. Bossbetternow.com. I love it. Joe, thanks for coming in, brother. It's always good to see your face, man. Likewise. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I appreciate you. Y'all, that was my time with Joe Mull. Woo! I tell you what, y'all. 
I got to work on my own drama skills over here because your boy needs to tighten up a little bit. Uh, But I am grateful for my time with him. Uh, And, uh, you know, what's funny is someone who seeks out a lot of validation and is someone who wants to be a people pleaser and accommodator. Now, those are sometimes dangerous drugs, both in how I Uh, how I push myself forward, what I believe I can do and what I am capable of and what I will allow myself to start. Uh, And so uh, I really appreciated talking to Joe about a lot of that kind of stuff and also just thinking about uh, the way that I seek out sometimes that validation from others as opposed to leaning into maybe confrontation. Uh, Maybe that confrontation is with me uh, and just being like, you got to make a decision. What do you want? What is your soul telling you? But also sometimes that confrontation of others as well, where it's important to stand up for ourselves um, and what we believe is right. So, yeah, I don't know. I really like my time with Joe Mall. I hope you enjoyed kicking this with us, y'all. I haven't told you this in a while, but if again, if possible, please leave a review on uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. It would mean the world. I'm enjoying keeping it going, y'all. It's been special kicking it with you. And until next time, my friends, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. You all take care. Y'all, it was so much fun kicking it in the diner with you. And I would say our timing was right about perfect because I just finished the last few drops of my milkshake. Listen, y'all, you would do my self-esteem a huge favor. If wherever you listen to podcasts, if you could leave a rating, if you could subscribe, if you could leave a comment, a review, anything like that, that is how we get this podcast into more people's ears. And if you want to stay in touch with the podcast elsewhere, we are Diner Talks with James on Instagram. Pretty original, huh? I agree. Also, if you want to hang out with me, Just individually on more places, I am James T. Robo all over the internet. Y'all had a blast with you. I appreciate you. Take care and stay great.